0: Hey everyone, welcome to the Smart Economy Podcast, a production of neonewstoday.com. I'm your host, Dylan Grabowski. In this episode of the Smart Economy Pod, I sat down and spoke with Chen Shuling, the CEO and founder of RockX. RockX is a non-custodial staking as a services provider for institutional grade clients and is among the largest service providers across Asia. In addition to staking services, RockX also provides an access node API that allows clients to connect and sift through on-chain data. In this conversation, Zhu Ling and I discussed the early days of Bitcoin as a semi-public industry in China and building a delegated proof-of-stake blockchain network in 2017, the broader market evolving and becoming driven by DAP usage how staking digital assets secures blockchain networks, the opportunities and constraints of liquid staking, how institutional clients can become part of a distributed validator network, and much more. Just a reminder, nothing said on this podcast is a solicitation to buy or sell any tokens, that nothing should be taken as financial advice, and that the host or guests may hold tokens discussed in any given episode. With that said, I really enjoyed chatting with Xu Ling, and I hope you enjoy the conversation too. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Smart Economy Podcast. Today, we are joined by Chen Zhu Ling, the CEO and founder of RockX, a company that is building a gateway to Web3 and is Asia's leading non custodial staking and access node API provider. Good afternoon, good evening, good morning, Zhu Ling. How are you doing today?
1: Hi, everyone. I'm feeling great. Thank you for having me on Smart Economy podcast. I'm really excited to be part of it.
0: Yeah, me too. I'm excited for this conversation because we're going to be talking about blockchain services and staking as a service provider. And there's a lot of questions about liquid staking that I myself have as someone who's been in the space since 2017, but also that maybe our listeners who have a few less years in the space might be interested in learning about as well. But before we dig into all of that, I just want to kind of hear a little bit about who you are and what your background is. So you have an educational background in engineering and you started your career in manufacturing and oil and gas. So before we get to the crypto blockchain part of your professional arc, can you just share with us a little bit about what you studied and what field you went into after school?
1: Sure. Yeah, absolutely. I think looking back to my years of experience, right, I do think every bit of that experience adds up to where I am. And also, you know, that kind of explains my passion and what I'm doing right now. So I moved to Singapore when I was 18 under a government scholarship. So I studied engineering in Singapore, mostly chemical engineering. So the kind of natural choice of Korea after that was oil and gas or pharmaceutical. So on my final year, I was very much unsure what exactly I want to do. Did my internship at ExxonMobil as a process engineer. That was okay, but like nothing really exciting for me. So I was like, okay, so... I don't know what I want to do. Maybe I should just go for a grad school so that I can delay my decision, right? So I was very lucky. I got into MIT. So I moved to Boston for a manufacturing, mostly looking at, you know, system engineering, supply chain, et cetera, how a complex system behaves, how to simulate that. Really loved it. But that was also during the time that at Boston, because there are so many schools, so there is a very strong culture of doing consulting. So the consulting firms hire a lot of people from grad schools. So I was like, OK, maybe I just tried that. We did a few case competitions. We formed a team. We did that among different business schools. We did pretty well. We got into top three few case competitions. So start to receive money for that. I was like, ah, oh, OK, you know, <laughs> seems like a hobby might turn into a career. So that's how officially my career started as a strategy consultant in Singapore. So my job is basically advise governments and also large companies in Southeast Asia on various topics, including financial service and also telecommunication, which is more on the technology part. And that was back in 2013. We're in Southeast Asia, excluding Singapore. All the other countries like Indonesia or Thailand, their whole telecommunication is only picking up. So is their fintech thing, right? So that was where I started to look at a lot of new things. While the interesting thing I did was advise the Central Bank of Myanmar and also to help them reform the financial sector in Myanmar. So one of the things I did was to create e-money for a very much cash-centric industry. So, you know, we're really trying to convince people that get rid of cash, and they use their mobile phones for payment. And if you look at it, this is very much like a fiat based stablecoin nowadays, mm-hmm. of course, without using a blockchain, right? So, actually, without using blockchain, then we have to build very complex systems just to making sure that everything tallies. So, how much money in the bank is the same as how much all the transactions in circulation, et cetera. I think blockchain has made the whole stablecoin use case much more streamlined. So totally loved that experience in consulting for five years. Then one day, one of my roommates at MIT called me up. He's like, hey, I know you're still reading a lot of business plans. You should really start to look at white papers. I was like, what is that? It sounds interesting, but I have no idea what that is. So he keep on calling me up and said, hey, you know, we're already in this space. You should try it out. Why don't you join us as an investment fund? I trust that guy a lot without knowing the details, right? So I was like, okay, yep, I'm going to quit my job. I'll join you guys. So in early 2017, so that's how I got into crypto space, basically just by someone calling me up. So we started to read tons of white papers, trying to understand a lot of technology concepts. We talked to a lot of projects as well, trying to like help them out. So that was a really great year, you know, knowing so many new friends globally. So that's also how I got into this space.
0: Awesome. There's more I want to pull on there, but it's really interesting to hear how when you were a grad student at MIT, you were doing these kind of side gigs where you were creating, I would assume, kind of like consultancy plans for potential clients. And even better to hear that as a quote unquote broke graduate student, that you were able to win some prize money. That's a really interesting genesis into your first career out of school. Like you, I hid in grad school because I didn't know what I wanted to do afterwards and ultimately became an urban planner, which is working with a lot of civil engineers, not necessarily mechanical engineers. So we share a similar professional arc where we started in one area, kind of hid out in grad school and then ended up working in another area completely later. But I really appreciate the way that you poised everything because it was kind of your postgraduate career and your first job and career sector. And then you were recruited into the blockchain space in 2017. So I want to talk a little bit about the project you were recruited to. But I want to hear first, was 2017 the first time you heard about cryptocurrency, about Bitcoin or about Ethereum? And if it wasn't, can you remember the first time you heard about cryptocurrencies and
1: what your initial thoughts were? Yeah, so definitely 2017 was not the first time I heard about Bitcoin. If I remember correctly, the first time I heard about Bitcoin was probably 2013 because it was on the news because there was a bull around, right? And everybody got excited. But now if I saw even closer, wow, well, my roommate at undergrad, so he was in the computer lab in 2011. So he was actually mining Bitcoin, but he didn't tell me. So I only got to know that when we met again, in 2017. I was like, dude, you know, you should have told me that. Or <laughs> at least, you know, my computer was on all the time. I wasn't playing game all the time. There are some free capacity for that. Yeah. So things get like really interesting. And also I was born and raised up in Sichuan, which is the southern southwest part of China. So that's where there's abundance of hydraulic power. So only after I got into crypto and I started to talk to people I know in Sichuan I realized that there are so many BTC miners there because they're leveraging all the hydraulic power.
0: Yeah, that's super cool. When you were in Sichuan, I guess you weren't living there because you were a student and you were probably studying and traveling and then you spent some time in Boston for graduate school. But what was the sense of ability for the miners to just kind of go out into public and talk about operating these mining units? I know that in 2014, 15, 16, and even 17, from the top down level of the national Chinese government, there still wasn't dislike or disregard towards the mining industry. It wasn't until 2017, 2018 that mining was banned in the country. So just to kind of get a general sense of what it was like in Sichuan, were miners afraid to go out into the world and talk about what they were working on? Was it kind of a well-known secret that there were these mining operations that were using this really cheap electricity? What was the miners' relationship with the broader technology community during that time, if you can recall?
1: Yeah, I think you summarized it really well in terms of the period of times. So nowadays, as far as I know, there is no large scale of BDC mining anymore in China because there was a hard stop two years ago. Some of them have already started their operation in U.S. or even elsewhere, right? But in fact, prior to that, BDC mining was kind of a semi-public industry in China for the simple reason that at the very beginning, they were using mostly hydraulic power, which are surplus- in certain rural areas, those electricity could have gone useless if not there was BTC mining. And so actually they created a lot of jobs in really rural areas and also helped those power plants a lot. And also they were kind of struggling in terms of figure out the tax part because the government has no idea what to do with that. So the miners are actually willing to pay for tax. They actually welcome uh, clear regulations, but they can't really talk about it in public. This is also one of the reasons why we're doing proof of stake staking, because we see this is more like a new mining in a proof of stake era.
0: Yeah. No, thank you for sharing that. I really appreciate your insight. It's not very often that we get to have conversations with folks who were kind of around during that time and maybe not working full time in the industry, but definitely had their finger on the pulse. So it sounds like you were recruited in 2017 and it was almost an easy yes for you. You didn't have to sit there and debate the merits of jumping into a brand new industry. And I'm sure we're going to lead into this as we talk about your work at Elf or a I'm not quite sure how to pronounce it, but What was the moment for you, the thing that clicked, the thing that made you say in your mind, "Okay, I need to work full time in this space? What was the thing that made it impossible for you to say no?
1: Yeah. So for me, I think there were two major reasons. First of all, I was about to turn 30 and I was asking myself, like, hey, you know, I spent so many years in engineering, but I never get to use those knowledge right and i was a consultant i was a man in suit all the time but at one period of my life i do want to do startups and if i start to have family kids do i still have that much freedom to try it out so back then i was still very much into work so i thought okay probably this is the time for me and secondly back then my girlfriend which is now my wife she was super supportive she basically told me look if things didn't work out she's still working we still have bread on the table There's nothing to worry about. So as a couple, having that support means a lot to me.
0: Yeah, really cool genesis. There are a lot of similarities in our backgrounds as to how we got into the crypto space. I wasn't dating my now girlfriend. So I had to kind of have that conversation with myself. But I very much remember looking in the mirror and saying, if I leave this previous career where I'm working for the government and I have great benefits and I go full time into the blockchain space, if everything collapses, will I still be young and educated enough and hungry enough to go out and start a brand new career. So I very much remember these conversations, but I was having them internally. So it sounds like you were lucky to have a sounding board to bounce these ideas off of. So you decided to bite the bullet. You jumped full time into the crypto space. And I want to talk about your first project, because I think it will help shape the conversation for working on an infrastructure and then how that changed your perspective and gave you the idea to launch a services provider for the blockchain space. So can you just share with us what was this first project that you started working on behalf of? I believe it's pronounced a but I could be incorrect. So could you just share a little bit about what your first blockchain project was?
1: Sure. Yeah. So it's called Alf Usually we just pronounce it that way. Yeah, so back in 2017, as you know, there were only a handful of blockchains, right? And having smart contract is also kind of like a new thing back then because you see more blockchains are trying to follow the routes of Bitcoin just as a payment blockchain. But what we believe after looking at so many different projects, right, uh, in 17, was that, hey, blockchain could also be part of the internet that runs more complicated stuff. So we do like the idea that Ethereum was positioning themselves as the world computer, but also the reality back then is that if you really want to run something meaningful, Ethereum, it's super slow and also it's very costly. So this is where I was looking for opportunities to co-found different projects. So I met my co-founder back then, L. so he's an engineer. So he's been already building Elf for half a year. So we chatted a lot. And some of the ideas I really liked about it was, number one, it's hard for us to imagine a world or a blockchain that hosts hundreds or even thousands of dApps on one single blockchain. It just sounds crowded. And it also sounds like you have no freedom of customize anything on that public blockchain. So we envision this is more of a multi-chain world. Where maybe different types of use cases should be running on different side chains, and also if there could be some kind of like parallel processing that would just make things much faster. So now, if we look at it, some of the ideas are quite similar to what Cosmos has achieved nowadays.
0: Interesting. So. Just to paint some context for some of the listeners who might not have been around in 2017, you left and started working on Elf around August, September, October, which was just before the peak of the ICO bull market. This was during a time when Ethereum had one DAP that clogged the network, CryptoKitties. And if this is going to be the world's supercomputer, then how is one dApp that is trading cute little cats that we use to breed and make more cats, how is this going to clog this network that at the time it was going to be all of the world's computer processes? Today, it's a little bit more of a refined vision. So that's kind of what my genesis into the space is as well. I started researching and writing about the Neo blockchain which was kind of a Cinderella story in 2017 and 18, largely because I got priced out of using Ethereum as a retail user, which was basically my first few digital assets when I, I just got into the space in 2017. And to be able to send a little bit of ETH and having it cost me like five, six, $10, that was kind of a shocking moment for me. So I can definitely empathize and relate with why you wanted to work on another project like Elf. So as we're going down the arc of working on a blockchain network, something that I think might be a little bit relatable is the lessons you learned with building out this consensus mechanism and working with the developer community. So can you just share a little bit about what Elf's consensus mechanism was? It doesn't sound like it was proof of work. And what was it like collaborating and working with the global developer community at
1: that time? Yeah, absolutely, right? So we spent two years building that out because in order to achieve that vision, we couldn't really take any codes from the existing blockchains. So we actually wrote everything in C-Shark. I believe actually that's the same choice as Neo blockchain back then. And during that two years, I think a couple of lessons that we have learned, number one is that how do you get the global community to know about you, right? Because information was still kind of segmented. So we tried to be, you know, every single conferences. So we went to consensus, we went for a token summit. I think we also got quite fortunate that our investor lineup, we got a Galaxy Digital, you know, we got Michael Arrington. So, you know, some of those established names also help us to get more publicity. So yeah, you know, developers started to came to us, some started to work as volunteers or contributors, then we recruited them into full-time team members afterwards. During that time, I think Ethereum is already kind of getting more onto the mainstream in terms of how to build smart contracts, in solidity. So one of the challenges we were facing was how to educate developers to use a different language. And even before that, there was a question of, okay, so because we can't really borrow anything from Ethereum, so what are the necessary or essential tools that developers need it has to be in place? so this includes you know okay do you offer a free rpc nodes for developers to try it out do you have some toolings some libraries for people to use examples etc so for us that was one very big thing right if you want to build a public blockchain yourself uh, not evm compatible it's a uphill battle where you need to build a lot of things from scratch And the second part about the consensus, so this is our belief, right? If you really want to push a blockchain that is efficient for smart contract, probably you should go for proof of stake rather than proof of work. Proof of work, we like it in the sense that it's probably the most secure way for storage of value. So that's what Bitcoin or even Zcash is doing. But if you really want to do a smart contract in an efficient way, proof of stake probably is the better way to do that. So we used a dedicated proof-of-stake mechanism and now it's also gone into mainstream for most of the smart contract blockchains. And for us, this is also a paradigm shift to incentivize token holders or to give token holders more roles that they can play, right? Because unlike proof-of-work world, if you're a token holder, you're just a token holder. But in your proof-of-stake world, you're a token holder. You can also be the one that safeguards the blockchain itself, you also have the capability to vote on certain governance topics for that blockchain. So this is actually a very powerful weapon to get the community going and get them more engaged.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting. So, you have since day one in your blockchain space been working on proof of stake networks. And I think something that's super interesting about your story arc is that you worked on the infrastructure layer first and then built staking as a services provider company later. So, as we start getting into what staking is and some of the broader industry context for why RockX exists, I did just want to hear an opinion of yours. Granted that you've been a builder since 2017, how has the demands and the needs of a blockchain network changed since your early days in the space and today? What are the needs that are different from 2017 compared to today?
1: I tend to think that from 17 to 19, that was the period that people are mostly talking about ideas and also just theoretical trade-offs. And that was also the time that people were trying to work on POC proof of concept. So it's only after 19 and 20 we start to have real DApps that are running, right? So started with some of the DEXs like Bancor, Uniswap, then getting to lending protocols. So in 2020 we saw the DeFi summer that started. So yeah, I think people start to look at things very differently once products are actually running. So. This is the time where people think about things in more details, right? User experience, gas C optimization, security, which is a big topic. I think in this whole industry, we're getting more and more product driven from a DApp perspective, right? Blockchain is not just about ideology or political ideas. You know, now it's the time actually its product speaks for itself.
0: Yeah, I love that. So I want to caveat these next few questions with the fact that they might be kind of basic, they might be very intuitive for you since you work in the space so much. But I do want to provide some context for our listeners. So forgive me if some of these are a little elementary. So just to paint some context, you mentioned this a moment ago that staking can be vital to the security of a network. So let's just start with this question. How does staking from various different users secure a network?
1: I like to take this example that if you think about a blockchain at the very minimum, it's very similar to a Visa payment network. So it allows people to do transactions, but more importantly, there needs to be a party that processes all the transactions in a correct way. The difference here is that for Visa network, it's just one company doing that. They just do double check right, or triple check after that blockchain the idea here is that okay anyone can become the parties that process those transactions so the question here is that okay it's permissionless right now then what is the criteria for people to play that role and how we can also ensure that their incentives are aligned to make sure the blockchain is secure so this is where proof of stake comes into play so the whole idea here is that if you are a token holder meaning that okay you have a stake in this blockchain you probably are aligned that you want to make sure that this blockchain is secure. And the more stakes you have, probably you have more incentives to make sure that this blockchain is working as planned or even actually grow bigger. So how it works is that token holders can use their tokens to nominate or to spin up validators themselves or interest someone else validators. So these validators kind of like a elected representative in the house right so they actually does the work of processing all the transactions
0: perfect so to secure a network, you have users provide a stake of digital assets. And by locking up those assets, they choose which validators are going to ensure that the previous block and all the transactions on it is indeed the correct block with the right transactions. And once validated, that can become part of the chain of blocks. And that's sort of how the network is secured by people essentially voting on who they want to validate the network. So prior to the major ETH upgrade that we saw earlier this year, users would lock up their ETH and it was an undetermined amount of time that their ETH would be locked up for, I guess it was the testnet proof of stake network at the time. Now that that major upgrade has gone through, users can opt to withdraw their ETH from the validator that they stake to. And then Alternatively, in other networks like the Cosmos-based networks, these app chains typically have an unbonding period of 14 to 21 days, two to three weeks. So historically, we've seen in these staking networks that while your assets aren't permanently gone when you're choosing a validator to vote for to secure the network, users do have limited access to those resources. So a phenomena that kind of became mainstream for your average crypto degen within the past couple of years is something called liquid staking. And this kind of rose to prominence with entities like Lido, which I want to talk about in a little bit. But again, continuing down the elementary definition level so that our listeners have context, can you just
1: explain like I'm five what liquid staking is? Yeah. So as you mentioned, Dylan, prior to liquid staking, if people decide to stake our validator, their tokens are actually locked up, most likely in their own wallet, right? So although those assets are still in their wallet, meaning that nobody can touch it, but also in return, they are losing the liquidity of those tokens, meaning that those tokens are not allowed to be moved around, or if they are needing some cash, they can't really sell them off. So staking becomes illiquid. So the idea of liquid staking is, in fact, using a smart contract. So all the tokens come into a smart contract, then they can be deployed onto various validators, and the token holders in return Would get a liquid staking token that represents the ownership of the native tokens that they have staked. So, on one hand, because all the underlying native tokens are staked, so you can enjoy a yield just like you have staked. At the same time, because you are holding a liquid staking token, which shows the ownership of your underlying tokens, so also means that, okay. Without moving your underlying tokens, you can just trade or transfer your liquid staking tokens to achieve that purpose.
0: So it sounds very good for me as a token holder. I have this asset and I want to secure the network. So I use this asset to vote on a validator, but my asset's now locked. However, this liquid token comes around and it allows me liquidity. So now I can use this liquid derivative of the token on DEXs or elsewhere in blockchain processes that... Will accept this token so other than providing the freedom of moving these assets and the ease of accessing them are there other positive benefits associated with liquid staking i'm not trying to diminish the value that access to these illiquid tokens provides that in and of itself sounds like a really positive externality but what are some other positives that we're not necessarily thinking about? Because there are also a lot of arguments that people make against liquid staking. So what are some other positive arguments?
1: Right. Yeah. So actually, thanks for raising this up, because you just reminded me of another very important benefit of liquid staking is the fact that by having liquid staking, you are actually making all the principal, but also the yield itself wrapped token. So this means that we're bringing a yield or a crypto-native reward that is fully on-chain and also that is fully DeFi-composable. So the very important implication here is that with liquid staking, a new type of yield comes into DeFi, right? So in the past, when we talk about yield in DeFi, it's either about transaction fees on yield farming or it's the lending interest on a lending protocol right? These two are great, but these two are always heavily dependent on business activity. So if no one is lending or if no one is trading, then there's no yield on DeFi. And if there's no yield on DeFi, people don't find any reasons to use DeFi. But now here comes another liquid staking yield, which actually comes from the block reward of the blockchain itself. So no matter whether people are using are trading or lending, this is actually the first ever stable yield that can last for long term.
0: Okay. So I appreciate that you brought that up because one of my questions was if there's an individual who's liquid staking, let's say they're staking ETH and this yield they're earning is L ETH. We'll call it liquid ETH, the derivative token. So that L ETH is tied to the ETH rewards that are being released as part of the yield for operating in the validator network. So one of my questions was, if we're creating these liquid staking tokens, doesn't that just mean that we're creating a brand new market where there's only value on paper? But it sounds like your answer would be no, because the yield of these liquid staking tokens is actually tied directly to the yield of the tokens that are acting as the underlying asset.
1: Mm hmm. This is also why, if you look at the current DeFi space, so trading on liquid-staking tokens has huge volume for DEXs, and also lending against liquid-staking tokens has a huge volume on lending protocols. So in my view, actually, because of the introduction of liquid-staking tokens, this is going to force all the DeFi protocols to revamp themselves so they can embrace a new type of yield. Like prior to liquid staking token, there's no sovereignty bond in DeFi, but now there's sovereignty bond, then there are more things that people can play with.
0: That's really interesting. And I kind of want to break from this line of questioning to ask about the clients that you have at RockX. You mentioned sovereignty bond, and this is the kind of language that an institutional investor, an institutional client might be more familiar with. So is this like the liquid staking derivatives and the yield that you're gonna receive and how it's related to a sovereignty bond? When you're having these conversations with your institutional clients, are these the type of concepts that help them wrap their head around this new technology and asset class? And if not, what are some other ways that you connect the dots for these kind of higher net worth, larger scale types of clients?
1: Yeah, so because for RockX, we focus on serving institutional clients. So it's really important to make sure that they're educated and comfortable using our services, right? And use the example of sovereignty bond, or we call this the internet sovereignty bond, to help them understand this, right? Basically, the first question they're going to ask is always about, okay, so now you're telling me that if I stake by it, I'm going to get a yield. Who are you lending that to? We said, no, we're not lending that to anyone. So you don't have any counterparty risk or liquidation risk. In fact, you are the only one that has control of all the tokens of your own. So we're not adding any additional risk to you. Then we get explained to them, where does that yield come from? So this is where the metaphor of a sovereignty bond comes from. Just like in Asian, this actually comes from not of the treasury, but come from the blockchain itself. As a monetary policy, so there is an inflation that compensates you for the yield. And on top of that, there is also part of the transaction fee that also goes to your pocket. So this is very, so transaction fee is very similar to a real GDP generation in the blockchain economy. So we have had quite a good success rate in terms of explaining in such a way to institutions. And once they understand, oh, actually, in this case, they are having very limited counterpart risk probably their only counterpart risk in this case is the blockchain itself. Then they start to get more interested. And so they will start to ask more about technical security details. And if you're ready, they will start to help them to do liquid staking. So we are one of the node operators behind Lido for the past two years. And this year we launched our own institutional liquid staking solution because we do think that the institutional customers are the underserved parties in the space.
0: Awesome. I want to dig more into these relationships and how they form and the types of conversations you have. But before we do that, I do want to just take a quick step back and address two other arguments that folks who do not support liquid staking might make. And they basically revolve around the concerns of centralization. So I think like Lido has a double digit percentage. Percentage of the entire ETH supply that is staked on its network. So, what are the issues that some liquid staking providers might have with centralization and the centralization of digital assets of a decentralized network? And then, secondly, how could a depegging event occur where staked ETH? no longer represents at a one-to-one ratio, the underlying asset ETH itself. So the two-part question is essentially, what are the concerns of centralization and how do we address them? And what are
1: concerns with depegging? hmm So I think the concerns of centralization on blockchain is always relevant and is always real. And this is not something that is introduced by liquid staking. You know, at the very beginning of every blockchain, usually you also see that, okay, there's only a few parties that are actually running validators for them. This is also one of the reasons why we set up RockX, because we want to be an independent validator company. So our mission is just to make sure that we're doing the work as it is, so that there are always independent validators like us. Now, if certain liquid staking protocol has gathered so much tokens, right, which could be double digits, And does that make things more centralized? I think, yes, this is definitely a legit concern. And this is actually the reason why we do think that in the market, we also start to see more protocols, liquid-staking protocols are emerging, right? So by having a more fragmented or diverse service providers, we can probably make things better. And of course, you know, I think Lido deserves the position they are right now because they are the first mover and they have done a lot of things right. But more interestingly, I would like to share this idea called distributed validator, meaning that we could be very huge, right? Let's say we are running close to 10,000 validators. But what we're trying to do for the next step is to make sure that among all the validators, we're not the only one that has the full control of it. So we are going to invite some of our institutional clients or even other companies to collectively run all those validators together. So this is a concept called distributed validator technology that we have been heavily involved for the past two years.
0: Wow, so that sounds really interesting. It's almost as if you're going out and creating the equivalent of a mining pool, but you're creating a staking pool of institutional clients to decentralize the amount of underlying assets that are held by single entities. And you're going out and getting big name brands to dissolve or to reduce the centralization of the amount of assets that RockX stakes. So maybe RockX could have staked 10%, we'll just use theoretics, 10% of the ETH supply. But then to provide a distributed validator technology, you might reach out to 10 of your clients and ask each of them to stake 1% of the supply. Is that
1: what you're saying? Yeah, conceptually similar to that, but we can do even better, even at a validator level. So, maybe one single validator will be partially controlled by us and partially controlled by a party two and partially controlled by party three. So, this means that, okay, no one can claim that this validator is controlled by RockX, or no one can claim that, okay, this is a validator controlled by a US company. This also makes all the validators more robust.
0: Mm-hmm. Very interesting. So I do want to ask another kind of elementary level question. What's the difference between custodial and non-custodial staking services? And how does RockX provide non-custodial staking services?
1: The key difference between a custodial and non-custodial staking service is about who actually owns the wallet, right? So in a non-custodial way, it means that it's the customer itself holding the wallet and he has the private key. In a custodial way, this is where not the customer himself holding the asset or the private key, usually they rely on a third party that is, let's say, a exchange or a custody, right? So it could be like a Coinbase or could be that they're using maybe Cactus, which is a custody. So in a custodial way, you do put a trust on a third party for the security of your assets. So on one hand, you know, this makes things easier for you because you don't have to worry about remember your private key or keep your private key safe. But of course, at the same time, you just make sure that the third party is doing their job for that and probably you're paying a fee for that. So we only do non-custodial staking, so meaning that we do not offer a custody or a wallet from our side. Customers can just easily do a delegation on our validator while all the tokens remain in their own wallet. So this is how we do it. So even if anything happens on our side, let's say our validators get hacked or something, the hacker has no access to our users' funds. Perfect.
0: What are the blockchain networks that RockX provides non-custodial validation services for? And what are the criteria that you guys have for choosing which network
1: to operate a validator node for? So our belief is that staking is going to be one of the largest asset management methods in crypto economy. And the institution is going to play a big role in that. Therefore, we support all the large market cap, or we call it the blue chips, proof of stake blockchains, right? So right now we support over 20 blockchains that our customers need. So the idea here is that, okay, first of all, these needs to be blockchains with large market cap, because that's where people are more interested in. And secondly, they have a good reputation or a technical capability that internally we are confident that they're going to stay for a long time. And once in a while, we do respond to our customers' requests if they want to bet on an upcoming blockchain and they want to have validated over there, so we spin that up on behalf of our customers. So we have done a lot for some of those app chains within Cosmos. But in terms of all the blue chips, we support a lot of EVM chains. We support a lot of interoperability ones like Polkadot or Cosmos. We support a number of high performance chains such as Solana or Aptos, Sui, etc.
0: Very cool. I'm not sure you're going to be able to give us specific examples of who your customers and clients are, but I'm going to ask anyways. Can you share with us maybe some examples of your clients? And if you can't, can you give us some examples of the types of industries or the types of companies they might represent?
1: Yeah. So one company that has been working a lot with us is Amber Group. Right. So they are a large asset management platform that also deals with institutions. So traditionally, they are a very strong team that does trading and lending really well. So they're kind of like an investment bank that fulfills all their customers' needs, particularly on trading side. But then they start to look at it. Like, okay, you know, so they think that they're really good at active management of token yield, right? Then they look at us and, oh, actually, there is a new way of getting yield, which is more of a passively managed way through staking. So they start to engage with us and they start to do a lot of staking onto our validators.
0: So after these clients kind of take a peek at RockX and they see the robust network of validator nodes that RockX offers, they get interested. But something I'm curious to hear about, this is an emerging industry within an emerging industry uh, validating as a service. So A, you probably don't have very much competition right now. But B, what separates RockX from other non-custodial staking service
1: providers? So there are already a number of validator service providers in the market, particularly in the U.S. and in Europe. So for us, I think, first of all, we are a rare type that started a long time ago in Asia. If you believe, in you know, blockchain is global, I think, you know, definitely you want to have validators across the globe. So that's number one. And number two, compared to some other service providers, we not only do just Ethereum or EVM compatible chains, we actually do more chains. This is due to the fact that in our mind, our customers are the large institutions, and they will probably do a more diverse portfolio of tokens. So we want them just to get to us, and we can fulfill all their needs. And lastly, not only we do validators, we also have another service called Access Nodes. So this is to allow large institutions to do data analytics or to send in transactions or to have any kinds of interaction with blockchain without running their own infrastructure. So this is how we believe by having both validator to generate a yield and also access node for them to connect onto blockchain. We saw probably the first questions when they get into blockchain.
0: Yeah, that's really cool. And so when you have a new client on board, are they typically both choosing RockX to provide validation services as well as tapping into the API infrastructure? Is it kind of they're just getting both at the same time? Or are you finding generally clients have a preference for one service over another?
1: We see that the bigger clients actually tend to look at both because they do have ambitions and also needs on both sides they start to appreciate that we are supporting so many different blockchains that probably they can think of. Smaller companies, they might probably just focus on one side. So this really depends on what type of customer we're talking about.
0: Yeah. Thanks for helping clear that up. It sounds like RockX's value proposition compared to your competitors is that You are a protocol agnostic, multi-chain staking as a services provider. So that's really interesting to kind of grok and to think about how your current and future clients are really going to embrace RockX further and further. We're getting towards the end of our time. So I didn't really get to dig into this subject matter as much as I wanted to, but I still wanted to at least get your perspective on this. So as a builder myself in a region that has lately been unfavorable to crypto and blockchain, I can commiserate with a regulatory agency potentially cracking down on businesses located in your jurisdiction. As far back as I can remember, even going back to 2018 Singapore was very forward thinking when it came to the digital asset space. However, in the past few years, a handful of companies that were headquartered out of Singapore have had these spectacular collapses, some of them even borderline scams. So, as a regulatory body, the folks in Singapore really need to make some actions happen. They really need to take a stance. So it's no surprise that we're starting to see the curb of retail investing in Singapore. But I feel like this is just a very short term kind of response. And retail investors demand regulators step in when we have these calamities like The collapse of Three Arrows Capital and FTX, as well as Terra Luna from both a centralized and a non-centralized perspective. So I just want to really quickly hear from your perspective. What's it like right now being a builder in Singapore, having a crypto based company located in Singapore? What's your outlook on the recent language that has come out of the regulators and maybe where companies that are headquartered in Singapore, what's the short term outlook? How long are you looking into the future until your regulators aren't necessarily being so scrupulous with the types of companies that are located there?
1: So first of all, you know, I think we're all aware of all the unfortunate incidences that happened last year, not only in Singapore, but globally, but from my perspective, I do think that most of the incidences happened are centralized entities. Luna is probably a rare type, but Luna itself is not really a DeFi. It's a stable coin, right? It's an algorithm stable coin that had a flaw in the design itself. But if you look at all the other instances like Celsius or Three Arrows and FTX, Those are all custodial entities that probably have some kind of a mismanagement of their users' funds. So I think, first of all, that is where the big focus of regulators are nowadays, is to protect users' funds in a centralized entity so that, you know, they're not used elsewhere or risk management is implemented in a proper manner. So on that front, I think all the regulations right now are basically talking about, okay, if you're a custodial service provider, either you need to have a third-party custody so that you cannot use your user response freely, and you probably need to declare what is the usage of user response when it gets to getting yield. So on that front, we think actually this is a good opportunity for non-custodial studio providers like us, because in our case, we're not creating any potential risks to users' funds, but rather generating a sustainable yield for them. We foresee that the need for such services is going to increase in the future. And secondly, I think Singapore has a very resilient ecosystem for blockchain. I do got a feeling that people have moved on from some of the incidents that happened last year. People are more looking into the future, whether this is about building NFT or building DeFi or building the new wave of c5 We see a lot of things going on in this whole space. And I think also Hong Kong being very open and also trying to be a pioneering certain aspects is actually getting a bit of healthy competition to other parts of the world. Yeah, so we're very positive in terms of how this whole space is going to play out in the next six months to one year.
0: Yeah, I share your positive outlook. 2022 had some really negative things that happened in the industry. And of course, there's going to be some blowback and some retaliation by regulators to protect retail investors. So what we're seeing right now isn't necessarily a shock and shouldn't be a shock for forward thinking crypto companies, especially for folks like you who've been building in this space since 2017. So it's really refreshing to hear, A, your perspective on RockX's non-custodial solutions, all Already kind of addressing some of these regulatory concerns, but also just acknowledging that indeed, Singapore is very forward thinking. I myself have been covering projects that headquartered there in 2019. So that's four plus years with a track record in this jurisdiction. So I share your positive outlooks as well. And regulations were going to happen as a result of all these fraudulent actors from 2022. So that is just about our time for this episode. I wanna thank you so much, Shuling, for sharing an hour with me. It was really great to dig into your background, into your experience, into your very valuable knowledge, skill set, and insights into staking as a services and being a non-custodial provider. So if somebody listening to this is interested in reaching out to you and reaching out to RockX, what's the best way they can do that?
1: So please feel free to visit our website www.rockx.com. So that's where you can find all the relevant information, whether you want to use uh, access node or connectivity, which we have free products, or if you want to use some of our validated service. So we have all the information there. Always welcome. If you want to send an email to me personally, I'll make sure that I read it and I can either replay myself or get my team to talk to you. So my email address is C for my surname and julie at rockx.com. Perfect,
0: Juling. Well, thank you for sharing an hour with us. I really enjoyed this conversation. And I can't wait to keep my ears to the ground and see the new clients that RockX onboards and the new networks that you and your team validate moving forward. So thank you so much for sharing an hour with us. And I look forward to catching up again sometime down the road.
1: Yeah. Thank you so much for having me, Dylan. Really enjoy this hour. And hope we can keep in touch and we can chat more on various topics in the future. Definitely. Me too. Cheers. All right. Cheers. Well, what did you
0: think of that conversation? I noticed an interesting correlation with RockX's multi-chain support for validator services and Shuling's background in building an alternative layer one public blockchain network. It was also intriguing to hear how RockX analogizes its staking services and their subsequent incentives to more traditional sovereignty bonds so that their larger scale clients can more readily comprehend the role of digital assets in networks and the yield they can derive. And it was interesting digging into Shuling's philosophy of increasing staking network decentralization through RockX's distributed validator solutions in collaboration with their institution-sized clients. With that, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to listen to the Smart Economy podcast. If you liked what you heard and want to support the show, please keep Neo News Today in mind when voting for your Neo Council member as part of Neo's governance processes. We appreciate you and look forward to catching you next time.